Welcome to the 46th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is how to differentiate and grow in a competitive environment with industry thought leader, Michael Kitsis. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other podcast resources. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independence space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. Few names in wealth management are as widely known as our guest today. Michael Kitsis is a partner and the Director of Wealth Management for Pinnacle Advisory Group, a private wealth management firm located in Columbia, Maryland that oversees approximately $2 billion in client assets. For most people, that role alone is plenty to have on one's professional plate, but for Michael, it doesn't stop there. He's also a co-founder of the XY Planning Network, Advice Pay, and New Planner Recruiting. Yet many know him through his work as the host of one of the industry's most listened to podcast shows, Financial Advisor Success, and as the publisher of the blog, Nerds Eye View on Kitsis.com. And even more know of Michael through his commentary in the media and as a speaker at industry events. It's hard to dispute that Michael is indeed one of the most prolific information machines in the industry. And he got there by publishing content without agenda or expectation and with no real audience when he started. His growth was fueled by persistence and a genuine passion for sharing his knowledge. Ten years later, he's one of the industry's leading thought leaders, one who many advisors we speak with see as their go-to resource. I'm really excited to have him on the show to talk about the industry and get his views on advisor growth, where we are now, and where we are heading. So let's get to it. Michael, I feel like I am in the presence of industry royalty, and I'm so grateful that you've agreed to join me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here and talking industry trends. Love it. So let me start out. I want to ask you a couple of questions about you and your background. You're a man who wears many hats within the industry. If you would, tell us a little bit about what you're involved in, how you spend your days. Yeah, as you say, I wear a couple of different hats these days. I'm a partner in the Director of Wealth Management back to Pinnacle Advisory Group. We're an independent RIA in the Baltimore, Washington area that manages about $2 billion of assets under management. I publish a blog called The Nerd's Eye View for the financial advisor community and speak at about 40 to 50 plus conferences a year uh, all across the advisor spectrum. I'm out at association events and broker-dealer events, insurance companies, really any, anywhere in our advisor world, and, uh, and I tend to be pretty involved and active. And then I'm the co-founder for a couple of different businesses that serve the advisor community, including... New Planner Recruiting, which is the name implies, we help do recruiting for paraplanners and associate planners into independent financial planning firms. A business called FP Pathfinder, which creates flowcharts and checklists for advisors to use in due diligence on complex client situations. A business called the XY Planning Network, where we support independent advisors that want to do financial planning for young people, for Gen X and Gen Y, and give them everything they need from compliance to technology to business processes and coaching and consulting to start, run, and grow their own RIAs, getting paid for financial planning. And then I'm a co-founder of a fintech company called Advice Pay that actually facilitates financial planning fees so that you can bill clients directly to 
their credit cards or their bank accounts via ACH, which if you're going to do ongoing what we call fee-for-service models, so some kind of ongoing financial planning fee model, you know, monthly subscriptions, ret- quarterly retainers, annual retainers, you really need a piece of technology to facilitate that because having a client write a one-time check for a planning fee is fine. Ongoing checks for ongoing clients times lots of clients in your practice becomes a paperwork nightmare. And so Advice Pay was built to help and facilitate all of that payment processing work. Yeah, you are a busy guy, that is for sure. But I want to ask you about Nerd's Eye View. So you sort of gave it in a list of things you do, but it's really an extraordinary undertaking and a very popular vehicle. So you had told me offline that it's for advisors serious about their craft and who want to get better at it. And it goes out, you say, to about 33,000 email recipients daily, and your site gets around 250,000 unique visits per month. Certainly a testament to how well, your content marketing works. So a couple of questions about it. First of all, what is your primary message? What is it that advisors turn to you to learn about that they can't learn anywhere else? As you said, we view Nerds I view as being a site for advisors who are serious about their craft and, and want to really get better as professionals. I'm someone that views financial planning, not not to get like overly melodramatic, but as kind of a sacred duty, people come in with literally their life savings, like the the stuff they've spent their entire lifetimes accumulating and building up and want advice and want help. And when we live in a world where money is literally what you need to buy sustenance, essentials, food, clothing, shelter, as well as all the things that we enjoy in life, like money is essentially a survival good. And helping people with it, like you can make or destroy someone's life by doing that well or doing that badly. And so because of that, you know, I just, I take very seriously the duty that we have to clients as stewards to help them make good and effective decisions. And so on the one end, you know, we are in a world where financial planning is complex. Like there's tax stuff and retirement stuff and investment stuff and, and estate stuff and insurance stuff. And just all these different areas where you have to know your stuff. I mean, you have to have the technical competency. And so we do a lot of writing and education about how to do that well, advanced planning strategies, just advanced educational content on how this stuff works and trying to push all of us forward to keep learning and keep moving forward in our in our own knowledge for clients. And I also view at the same time that, that, you know, we don't have to be martyrs in serving clients. Like you, you can do this and also run an incredibly successful practice an incredibly successful business. And so a piece of what we do as well is writing and sharing content about how to run a more successful business, how to build a more successful advisory career. If you're in a, a employee model or an employee channel and how to be more successful and earn the rewards that you deserve for doing a really good job with helping clients in this sacred duty. So what's your competition? In other words, where besides Nerd's Eye View could an advisor get the same set of learnings and input? I don't really feel like we have very much competition. I think it's part of why we've been able to grow as we have. There are other trade publications out there, which I, I know some people kind of juxtapose us against other trade publications. We certainly have the readership and traffic of a lot of other trade publications in our industry. But you know, as I view it, the they tend to cover the news and I'm happy to let them cover the news. You know, I, I don't staff a newsroom full of reporters to cover the news. Our goal is to cover the substance, the depth, the mm-hmm. the strategies, the applications, the more advanced stuff that frankly, you need to be pretty knowledgeable to teach in the first place. And so my writing and the people that write for us are folks that have the proverbial alphabet soup of designations who who have their technical competency at a very high level to be able to then teach it to others along the way as well. And so you know, we have some advisors that I know would look to like advanced conferences probably is the most common alternative for people that want this kind of knowledge and education and, and aren't coming to our platform for it. But of course, the irony is that we we speak at a lot of those conferences because for us, it's just a, another channel for the same kind of content. And so we'll do it in a written form through the Nerd's Eye View. We'll do it through webinar format in the member section for com, And then we do it out at conferences for the advisor community as well. Well, and I would say it's extraordinary. I've read the content. I've listened to the content. It's extraordinary. And I think that the advisor community is lucky to have you. 
But you're 100% right that you've got the goods. In other words, it is unparalleled writing and an unparalleled resource. So what was your background before launching your writing and speaking business in 08, I believe? How did you get into it? And what do you think the most pivotal things were that brought you there? I mean, the background for me was being in an advisor world. I came in a the industry straight out of college, like literally the first business day after graduating. I landed originally in the life insurance side of the business. I was a life insurance agent, not for very long because I was a terrible prospector who couldn't find anyone as like a a 22-year-old who didn't like cold calling, uh, which didn't last long for you 20 years ago. So I I went from there to an independent broker dealer. I I went from there after a few years to an independent RAA, frankly, not really understanding the industry channels back then. I just kind of trying to find opportunities and survive as a 20 something in the industry who wasn't good at prospecting and out of frankly dumb luck landed in a very good, well-positioned RA for growth that had almost $200 million back in 2002. And as the, you know, the market turned, we came out of the bear market from the tech crash and growth really got underway again. The firm had a very dramatic growth cycle and I was there as their director of financial planning. And so I was delivering financial plans to clients and did hundreds and hundreds of financial plans that I built and delivered, which then turned into a a team of financial planners who were building, developing the plans and helping deliver them to clients. And I was overseeing the planning process and creation and the delivery to clients and teaching and training them and kind of found in that journey that I I really liked a lot of the teaching training kind of stuff. So I I began to do a little bit of writing and speaking on the side while I was still full-time at the advisory firm. I was speaking at a couple of the industry association events, organizations like the the FPA, Financial Planning Association. I started submitting a couple of articles to some of our trade publications like Journal of Financial Planning and Financial Planning Magazine and Bloomberg Wealth Management, which was a publication that was still around back 15 years ago. And ironically, for me, with the kind of the genesis of the shift to say, instead of being an advisor who does writing and speaking on the side, I really want to be more of a writer and speaker who just mm-hmm. does a little bit of advising on the side, was that back in the 2000s, like in, in the decade of the 2000s, obviously the internet was around, but most publications in our industry were still print first, digital second. So like if you gave them an article, they would print it in the magazine. And then they would take the stuff they'd put in the magazine and cross it over onto their website, onto their digital platform. But that meant every article I wrote had to fit the magazine format, which is typically you get like two pages front and back, somewhere around fifteen to 1,700 words, depending on whether you got one to three graphics in there. And I tend to write a little bit more long form. Like I like to be really deep and thorough in content. That's part of what has always differentiated our material from the rest. And the publications kept chopping my articles down to fit mm-hmm. the physical layout of a magazine. I said, like, this is ridiculous. It's the internet age. If you write it on the internet, there's no space constraints. People just keep hitting page down. This is not difficult. So darn it, I'm just going to launch my own platform and put my content out there where I don't have to worry about how many pages it fills because I'm not filling a physical print magazine. And that was kind of the genesis of it. I made the leap in early 2008, went back to the firm and said, I don't want to leave entirely. I like the firm, I like what I do here, but I want to shed a lot of the management responsibilities. I don't really want to take clients directly. You know, If I bring in clients, I'll hand them off to other advisors. I'm happy to still be the geek of last resort and you know sit in on client meetings and all the really complex technical situations that I tended to get brought in on because I've got two master's degrees and a whole bunch of designations after my name. So like, I'm, I'm pretty good on the nerdy stuff. That's the nerds I view name. So I kind of scaled back the role at the firm dialed up the writing and speaking business in in 2008 and never looked back and and still live a version of that today. So I've I've still got a a set of duties back to the advisory firms that I don't forget what it's like being an advisory firm and don't forget what it's like to at least occasionally sit across from some clients that I still have to sit in on for meetings at least once a year because I've been involved for a long, long time with them. And then, then spend the rest of my time doing this writing and speaking thing for the industry and now increasingly building businesses to serve the advisor community as well. I relate a lot to what you've said because I have been a recruiter 
for most of my adult life. And I still do plenty of recruiting. In fact, it's probably how I spend, let's say, 70% of my time these days, and I love it, and I'm good at it. But what I realized about five or six years ago was that I also really love writing. There's a creative side of me that wasn't being tapped, and I am loving the writing and the podcasts and being more creative. So I get it. But here's my question for you. So how did you go from being smart guy who was a good advisor who had good ideas to being a real industry thought leader that gets 250,000 visits to your website a month. The truth for it is it's, you know, it was an overnight success 10 years in the making. At the end of the day, a lot of it really comes down to not much more than what it takes to build any business, advisory business or otherwise, which is you steadily do the things that serve the people that you want to reach and you just keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, and let the word of mouth build and let the compounding build. So when we launched the site, I could probably count on my fingers and toes, the number of people who came to the website and read the articles every day. Almost no one, basically my personal friends and family was like, I made a website, come read it, please. Uh, But, you know, a few of them started sharing with their friends and, and the first year the traffic doubled. And then the next year, more than doubled again, and the next year, more than doubled again. And, and of course, in the really early years, like it's pretty easy to double things because the denominator is really small. Not very many people are are engaged with your business yet. But then the compounding, then the doublings continued year after year after year by just trying to create value and share it and spread it out there. And it built a big business over time, and particularly as it grew and compounded and kind of built upon itself. When you go through businesses that keep doubling, that means you know, every time you double, like you have done more growth this year than you did in all the prior years leading up to this point cumulatively, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what it means when you're, when your business doubles. And so early on, the doublings were just kind of enough to keep it going. I was getting paid for speaking. I was getting paid for a, a newsletter service we were putting out. I still had some duties back to our advisory firm. You know, I was doing fine. I could pay my bills, got married, started a family. But over the past four or five years in particular, the volume of the blog and its reach, I, I think, started to really hit a critical mass where it was reaching much more of the industry. We really started building businesses off of it. You know, all of our Pathfinder, New Planner Recruiting, XY Planning Network Advice, Pay and Such. You know, there's almost 60 employees across all of those businesses now. So, like, we've actually hired and built a lot of teams and businesses and driven a lot of revenue off of what started with just try to do things that are helpful for the advisor community and recognize that over time, if you're, if you're serving your community well, you tend to find some business opportunities in the process. And as it's grown, we've gotten better at that. And the reality is that the better that goes, the more rewarding it is for me as the leader of that business to spend more of my time focused on the industry, the trends, what we're writing about, because that's what has impact and creates the reach that lets us build the rest of these businesses. And so the more it grows, the more time I can actually spend focusing on this. And of course, the more you focus on it, the more you can do and the more you can learn and the more you can figure out and the more stuff that you see. And now that has begun to compound on itself. Yeah. Well, that's extraordinary. And it's been my experience. And I think what you're saying too, is that when your intentions are pure, you set out to share your wisdom gratuitously, people began to take notice because it was a place to get objective information, that good information that they couldn't get elsewhere. And hence it doubled and doubled again and continues to double. And before you know it, you've got 250,000 visits, unique visits to your website a month, which is extraordinary. But I want to pivot to I know you just launched the Kitsis Reach research study on advisor marketing. I'd love for you, if you would, to share some of your insights from that. What are the things that advisors could or should be doing to differentiate themselves in a crowded and competitive marketplace? The research study that we put out has been really interesting. We're actually looking literally in the, the number crunching phase, as it were, right now. We've, we've collected the data. We have data from almost 1,000 advisors on uh, what they're doing in the world of, of marketing. The interesting thing that we're finding overall is that sometimes as advisors, we have underestimated how valuable and impactful it is to really do marketing proactively and the strength of the ROI of actually spending on marketing because we do so little of it, we actually don't realize how good it can be. So here's how I would frame it. If you look at other businesses, 
out there. You can get out of financial advisor world for a moment. It's pretty standard in the marketing world that when you try to measure the efficacy of your marketing efforts, you come down to this number called customer acquisition cost or client acquisition costs, usually abbreviated as CAC. The idea of your client acquisition costs is simply to say, look, if we, if we take all the money we spend on marketing stuff and activities and efforts and ads and all the rest, whatever it is that you do, and you divide it by the number of clients that you got, you can figure out what your client acquisition cost is. So if I did a, a series of a, you know, a big mailer for a seminar in our area, and then we got a bunch of people in and a couple of them scheduled meetings and a few of them became clients and we kind of go through the funnel, we say, okay, I, say, okay, I spent $15,000 on that seminar between the marketing, the mailers, the event space, the food, all this different stuff. And I got three clients out of it at the end of the day. So we say, great, you spent $15,000, you got three clients, that is a client acquisition cost of $5,000 per client. So then you take the second step and say, well, what is a client worth to you? Well, what's your average client look like? Uh, Maybe your your typical client is someone that's got a million dollars that they give you as assets under management to work with. You you charge a kind of an industry average 1% fee, you get $10,000 a year of revenue from that client that only costs you $5,000 to get. This is pretty good math, right? It means literally every $5,000 you get, you spend on marketing, you double it in revenue with just a few months lag that it takes from you know starting the marketing until the person actually comes on board as a client. Now, to be fair, you don't quite double your money because of course you can't service those clients without some cost to your business, but uh, advisory firms typically can run 20 to 30% profit margins, even at some size and scale. And so my $10,000 client might net me Two to $3,000 a year in profits as long as I'm going to work with them, plus growth over time. And so if my clients typically stay with me 20 or 30 years, that means one client cumulatively over time may be worth as much as thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in profits. And it costs me $5,000 to get them. That's kind of a free money minting process at that point, if you can figure out how to get to that level. And I think for a lot of advisors, when you think about in those terms, like, could you blow $5,000 to get one human being who's willing to sit across from you and do business? Often the answer is yes. So what we're finding as we start doing the research and looking at it this way is that most advisory firms, well, first of all, are, are not very good marketers. They're not spending anything on marketing. In part, it's because they haven't really done this kind of math and looked at their marketing from a business perspective to say, look, anytime the lifetime profits of a client, the lifetime of client value exceeds your cost of client acquisition, you should just be pouring more money into that marketing funnel because literally every client you mint at the end produces you more in profits in the long run than you spent going in. The only constraint to you is your dollars, is your capital. It's like, how much money do you have to pour into the machine in the first place? That suddenly becomes the constraint to the business. And part of what we're actually finding in in the, at least the preliminary slice of the research results is that a lot of advisory firms are essentially marketing constrained because they're not putting dollars into their marketing, even though the long-term ROI can be hugely ludicrously successful because clients are so valuable in the long run. And the firms that are very capital constrained then don't have any dollars to invest in the marketing. So the only thing they can do is they invest their time, right? So we go to networking meetings and we prospect and we cold call and we knock on doors and we try to get client referrals, and like all those things that we can do that get us clients, but don't cost us any hard dollars that we don't have. But the problem is it costs us time and our time is actually valuable. In fact, uh, what we're finding initially is that if I actually value the advisor's time at a couple hundred dollars an hour, because ideally that's what you're earning sitting across from clients, the firms that are prospecting with their time actually have higher client acquisition costs and less favorable marketing costs than the firms that are actually spending dollars and systematizing a financial spend to generate financial results if they've got dollars to spend in the first place. And I think that's part of why we're even seeing this trend emerge in the broader industry now where the largest advisory firms are beginning to really scale their marketing. If you look at some of the biggest RAs that are five plus billion dollars, you see firms that are spending millions of dollars a year in marketing and bringing in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year in organic growth. Firms like Wealth Enhancement Group up in Minneapolis and Edelman Financial in Northern Virginia because the ROI of the marketing is actually very good. They're large enough that they have the dollars and the economies of scale to put in, and they're growing faster than anybody else because in the simplest sense, their client acquisition costs are lower. They're scaling them effectively by learning how to spend well on marketing. And the larger they grow, the more money they have to reinvest and the faster the machine turns. Michael, does that include 
digital marketing, sponsoring posts on LinkedIn and the like? Absolutely. Anything that you're spending dollars towards can work. So that's everything from seminar marketing, right? That's long been a staple in the advisor world. Send some mailers out or however it is you get the names, set up a local seminar, serve them lunch or dinner, do your speaking thing, try to sign them up at the back of the room. There's some dollars that are associated with that. You get a few clients at the end. You can convert it into a client acquisition cost. So there are firms that do it with seminar marketing and kind of embed marketing in general, you know, client appreciation events, prospecting events, sort of event-based marketing. It has a cost, but you can get some clients out of it. There's definitely a group now that's starting to do this in the digital realm as well. The digital realm is actually kind of interesting because, frankly, you can be exponentially more targeted with digital ads on Facebook than you can with zip code ads to do a mailer you know, by, by zip code, by geography, trying to hit affluent neighborhoods, hoping that a few of the people open up your mailer and come to your seminar. So we see advisors that are starting to do this in the digital realm. And we do see a subset of advisors that have some very compelling client acquisition costs doing digital marketing because they've gotten focused on who they want to go after. They use all of the modern technology that lets you get sometimes kind of creepy levels of targeted about it. You know, we've heard the bad versions of what what's happened with Facebook kind of inappropriately sharing some data with some other organizations. But from a business perspective, as the marketer, there's a reason why Facebook has grown so huge. Like it is one of the most incredibly targeted platforms for doing advertising that the world has ever seen. Second, maybe only to Google which is also why Google is one of the largest advertising groups in the world that's dismantling the entire media industry because the whole advertising world in every industry now is realizing you can be so much more targeted with digital ads than you can with traditional ads, billboards, newspapers, magazines, et cetera, that advertisers are just flocking to the places where it's more targeted because you get lower client acquisition costs, right? I don't have to spend money to reach the hundred people I want and the thousand people I don't, because I had to do a you know a, like a shotgun style ad, I can get super targeted on Facebook to people in this age range, in this geography, who live in this zip code, who have this particular inclination, who are of this generation. Like you can get to that level of targeting and really go right in on them, which means you get to the exact people you want. You don't have to pay ads for, to get them in front of the people you didn't want to reach anyways. And so your advertising costs get lower, your results stay the same or get better. And you see lower acquisition costs with better ROI. So let me ask you a question based upon that. If we assume that in today's day and age, marketing comes in a lot of different forms and because of digital marketing in more forms and it may have, there are many more ways to reach prospects than ever before. But in your opinion, if a firm or an advisor has a limited budget, not an unlimited budget, but a reasonable budget to spend on marketing efforts, if, it, if you had to pick between, if you had to pick, say, the top two between seminar marketing, general networking, blogging, podcasting, mailers, digital marketing, what do you think are the most impactful? I would tackle the question from a slightly different direction because the answer depends very heavily on who your firm's target client is and how targeted you are in the first place. The cool thing about some things like digital advertising in particular is it lets you get phenomenally hyper-targeted in who you're going after, which is completely useless if you don't have a clear definition of who you're going after in the first place. If you're a generalist firm that works with generalist clients, targeted strategies are kind of difficult to execute because you, you don't really know who to target and who to go after, and you can't figure out what the right message is for them because it only fits for a portion of your clients, not the rest, and they tend to get bogged down in it. And so firms that are more generalists, I find, tend to go after strategies like seminar marketing. You know, Our ideal client is a person who has enough money to invest with us, just frankly, not a terribly defined market, but you know, I want millionaires who are willing to delegate it to me. Okay, well, if that's how broad you are and that's about the best definition you've got, we well, don't really have much choice, but you know, do a seminar, blanket a zip code that has enough affluence that at least there will be some prospects somewhere in that zip code for you. Try to get them out, do your seminar, hope they show up and work. And we do see firms that have reasonable client acquisition costs from doing seminar marketing, but it tends to be a little bit more of a, a shotgun scattershot style approach, which if you don't have a clearly defined target market, you kind of have to do. When I look at firms at the other end of the spectrum that get really, really targeted and focused, the nature of what they do in marketing begins to change because they start getting really, really targeted on who they're going after. So at a minimum, you get firms that do things like, hey, we're going after 
retirees who are mass affluent that depend heavily on social security to make their ends meet in retirement, who are approaching the age of 62, which is a very sensitive point because they start getting that stuff from social security that says, did you know you're eligible for social security now? And we're going to do geo-targeting to them based on their location, plus age-based targeting, plus an interest-based targeting to try to find people who like the, who like golf, who would come to the local golf club and see me do a seminar on social security timing decisions for 62-year-olds. And you know, we're going to have an ad specifically for people who are about to turn 62 and know the local golf club. And you can get that level of targeted on something like Facebook and bring out golf enthusiasts who would love to come to this club who are 61 years old and approaching retirement who, have, uh, who are at least mass affluent. Well, now when I know I'm going after them, I can get hyper-targeted. I get a more efficient ROI on my marketing, but it only works because I've gotten the greater level of client specificity. When you go a step beyond that, we see people that go full on into niches. You know, marketing takes on whole new realms. I've seen like advisors who specialize in you know, pharmacists who spend most of their time sponsoring booths at pharmacology conferences because that's where their prospects are. No other financial advisor goes to a pharmacology conference and has a booth uh, for financial planning for pharmacists. But if your niche is pharmacists, that's actually a great place for you to be. And the booths are actually very reasonably priced. You know, we had someone on our podcast a little ways back whose niche is bass fishermen. Not all fishermen, right? Because that would be too broad, just bass fishermen. You know, he grew up on a lake that had a bass fishing tournament. His father was a bass fishing pro, which was his entry into the community. So he focuses on bass fishermen. So he exhibits his advisory firm at bass fishing trade shows and exhibition shows. And one of his biggest marketing events is organizing fishing and hunting expedition trips for bass fishing enthusiasts to come along on and just kind of organizes them as collegial hunting and and fishing trips. But at some point gets to know them better because you're out hunting with someone or fishing with someone for several days in an isolated environment and ends out building relationships with prospects who turn into clients. It works because that's his community, that's his niche, and he knows how to organize those events in a cost-effective way that creates a tremendous ROI for him. That's his marketing spend. Wouldn't suggest that to the average advisor. Like, you know, go organize a hunting trip and start inviting prospects. But when your niche is bass fishermen and hunting enthusiasts, this is a fantastic way to market. Right. So, you know, it brings up a question. When we're talking about an independent firm or an advisor that is independent, the world is his or her oyster in terms of his ability to decide how much he or she wants to spend on marketing and what kind of marketing he wants to do. But let's shift for a second to the perspective of a wirehouse advisor, because many of our listeners are just that, advisors that currently work for a captive brokerage firm who are considering independence. And we've talked a lot on this podcast, and we've written a lot about some one of the major benefits of independence is obviously gaining freedom and control over all things, including one's marketing efforts. But if you work for a wirehouse firm or any brokerage firm, and you are limited to some degree to the wording or how you can market, how you can differentiate yourself by your firm's compliance department. Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I can speak to it. I, ultimately, a lot of the formulas are still the same. I mean, there's some level of, you know, I probably wouldn't try to work in a wirehouse and establish my niche presence with a really active Twitter presence because, you know, every, getting every tweet pre-approved is probably going to be so a little bumpy. But uh, you know, if if you've lived in a in an advisor world where you know, heck, for like thirty odd years, you get people's business cards and you mail them a newsletter, right? A lot of us have been doing that for a long time. You you write the article, you get a pre approved by compliance, you put it in your newsletter, you send it out to people once a quarter. It's good old fashioned drip marketing. If you've already done that, you can do that in a digital realm. Same article, same pre approval. You'll just send it out by email instead of sending it out by print, which happens to both be cheaper and have a better reach because it's really easy for people to forward it to each other. Then you can try to add something to your website that lets people sign up for your mailing list, or you can just ask prospects when you meet them, hey, can I add you to my email list? It just becomes a much more scalable and digitally driven solution. A lot of advisors, even I, I know in the wirehouse realm, have done seminar marketing for years. You can still do seminar marketing with digital tools. It's just instead of sending out a physical mailer that compliance has to pre-approve, you'll post a Facebook ad that compliance has to pre-approve. And you just get to target it more specifically and spend less money to reach more people. 
So a lot of the stuff that we do or have kind of done historically in advisor world actually works fine even in, in a wirehouse environment. And I've seen advisors that are doing these. Certainly the nature of compliance in a large firm environment, there's a lot of, I don't know what I'll call like real-time efforts around social media and engagement that clearly get get harder because compliance tends to be very restrictive around real-time communication on social media channels and figuring out can they oversee it or how are they going to oversee it. And you know some of the wires are a little bit more liberal with that than others. But a huge portion of the success that advisors are finding, even in the realm of, of digital marketing, all they're doing is taking analog strategies that have worked for 30 years that compliance already proves and just distributing or delivering them with more targeted internet stuff. But it's basically the same ads, the same message, the same things that compliance already approves. You're just sending them out by different means. So, and you know, that brings up a good question. I read an interview you did with Barron's a while back where you said you think that one of the biggest challenges facing advisors is the challenge of differentiation. So if you are an advisor who's an employee and limited in some capacity to how you can market yourself and what you can say. How hard is it to differentiate yourself in that world? I think it's just, it's become hard to differentiate across the entire landscape. The shift to financial planning, the shift to wealth management, the shift to the fee-based model, whether you're an RAA or doing fee-based advisory accounts in a broker-dealer environment. You know, I, I go to pretty much any advisor's website now, and you know, we do uh, comprehensive financial planning, customize the individual needs of our clients, taking into account their personal circumstances to help them create a goals-based portfolio that gets them to their hopes, dreams, goals, and wishes, which we deliver by having a number of advisors with years of experience in all of these expert credentials. And we all have slightly different combinations of those buzzwords, but we pretty much all use those same buzzwords, usually paired with a picture of a walk on the beach, a lighthouse or Adirondack chairs. And, and it just looks the same to every client. And then when we don't get enough growth, we start casting our nets even wider, trying to get more people to come in. And so we start saying, well, you know, now, now we specialize, but we don't want to cast the net too narrow. So we write on our website, like we specialize in individuals, families, small business owners, institutions, and women. Because those are all the different kinds of firms we serve. And that's actually 170% of the population with redundant overlap to say we specialize in individuals, families, small business owners, institutions, and women because we're still struggling with differentiation, casting the net too broadly and out where any particular prospect comes to the website and says like, oh, well, I'm a small business owner. But all I see is that 80% of your clients aren't people like me, which means you actually probably don't know much about me. And then the family who's about to retire comes in and says, oh, well, you also work with individual small business owners, institutions, and women. Well, I'm a male who's getting ready to retire. So it sounds like you don't really work with people like me. And we actually cast the net so broadly, trying to be special to everyone, that we end up being special to no one. And the problem actually gets worse. I sometimes analogize this, so kind of hard in a podcast format. But you know, imagine I'm holding in front of me like a fishing net. Uh, like, you know, got two hands on either corners of a square fishing net that I'm, I'm going to use to catch some fish, to catch some prospects. But I'm not getting as many fish as I want. I'm not getting as many prospects as I want. So what most advisors do is they take this net that they're holding at the corners and they stretch it even wider. They pull their hands further apart so that the net stretches bigger so that more prospects will hit their net and they'll have a better chance of catching some. And the problem is if you literally imagine like holding a net and stretching it out to be even wider, it does cover more space. But the holes of the net get bigger because you're literally pulling it further apart. So what ends up happening? More fish hit the net and more fish swim through the net. So you get more leads, you get more prospects, you get fewer clients. And that trap of trying to stretch the net bigger but making the holes bigger in the process, to me, is the biggest challenge that I see most advisory firms struggle with in the marketing environment today. And the ones that we see that are doing the best, that are having the most success, they actually don't take the net and try to make it bigger in order to catch more fish. They take the net and they make it smaller and tighter. So the holes are really tight. No one ever swims through. And then they put the net where the fish are, right? Which for bass fisherman guy is literally, he goes and exhibits at bass fishing expedition shows. So that mentality of don't stretch the net bigger, which just makes you more undifferentiated, make the net smaller by making yourself more differentiated and then putting it where your fish are, where your prospects are, where you want to go and catch some business is the way that actually takes firms forward in marketing. So there's a mindset shift there that I'm finding most firms are struggling with. So many just keep trying to stretch the net wider 
and wider and wider. So we specialize in you, not just five types of clients, eight types of clients. And the websites get more bland and more broad. And just clients aren't convinced, I think, these days. You know, everybody says they do comprehensive financial planning advice. That just doesn't do it anymore. Funny, we find the same thing when we get calls from firms and I'm talking about independent firms that are looking to grow inorganically. They're coming to us to ask if we can help them to recruit top talent. And we say, well, what's your, what's your secret sauce? What's your value proposition? What differentiates you? And they always lead with, well, we have really strong client service. And we're thinking big, fat yawn. Who wouldn't say that, right? You know, the FPA actually did a study uh, about two or three years ago on how advisors differentiate themselves. And what they found in the study was that 72% of advisors differentiate on above average service. It's literally mathematically impossible. We 72% of us can't be above average in client service. <laughs> Not only are you right that like no one says they do bad client service, like it's it's really hard to differentiate on, but we're literally also obsessed about it that we all say it to the point that 72% of advisors differentiate on something that mathematically can't be done by 72% at the same time. And that should be table stakes. That should just be par for the course and not part of what differentiates you. Absolutely. And, and the most common differentiator for advisors, the only thing that, sc that scored higher than client service was my ability to understand my client's needs and objectives to create a customized solution for them. Understanding your client's needs and objectives is not a differentiator. It's how you get not sued. Like it's literally a requirement <laughs> from FINRA. You have to know your client and their needs and objectives. Like yeah. this doesn't distinguish you. This is how you get not sued. So, you know, when we literally hang our hats on things like I differentiate on my ability to understand my client's needs and objectives and my above average client service, those were unequivocally the top two. You do a presentation about this to a lot of broker dealers and we do a live poll to the audience without giving them this up front, like just give them a live poll of about 15 different ways that you can differentiate. And every single time we do it, the top two differentiators that advisors always report in the live poll, number one is understanding clients' needs and objectives. And number two is client service. And they're always 70 to 80%. And you literally can't be differentiated in those when 70 to 80% of advisors say they're doing it. Yeah. Well, my favorite, I'm going to make you giggle. My favorite is we said that to a firm, you know, what differentiates you? How do you set yourself apart? And they said, we validate parking for our clients. Well... I guess if you're in New York City, that's technically a pretty yeah, good thing. I guess deal, that's a good right? thing, right. And I suppose there actually is an essence there that, to be fair, I would give a slight nod to, which is you, know, <laughs> you can try to go truly above and beyond in client service and convenience beyond what other firms do. And you know, getting down to, we make sure that parking is not a pain at our firm, even though we're in the city where parking is a pain. Like I think that actually does start to become the edge of a legitimate differentiator. But I don't know if I would want to bank the future on my firm on the fact that my ha my competitors in the area haven't figured out that they too can validate parking and then they'll take away all my clients because I'll lose my differentiator. Yeah, I think you're being a little kind though, because this particular firm was not in New York City. But nonetheless, let's shift our discussion to your perspectives on the industry in general. So first and foremost, what are your thoughts on this breakaway movement? The momentum of so many advisors leaving traditional employee land to go independent. So I have... I have a little bit of a different take on the breakaway movement, which is that like, I, I think it's a big deal and I think it's a sustaining deal. And I'll, and I'll talk more about that in, in a moment. But frankly, I think it's also a really drastically overstated trend in the grand scheme of the industry. You know, if you add up the number of advisors who work at Merrill, Morgan, UBS, and Wells, right, our big four wirehouses, it's, it's about 50,000, give or take a little. And then when you look at all the industry studies on the breakaway broker movement, you know, we talk about the dozens of advisor teams that are leaving. And when the headcount is in the tens of thousands and the number of people who are leaving is measured in the dozens, we're actually at a point where the number of advisors who are breaking away, like we're, we're talking about somewhere between, I don't know, 0.1% and 0.2%. So in a realm where somewhere between 99.8 and 99.9% of advisors are not breaking away every year. I don't think we're exactly seeing the beginning of the end of the wirehouse and the downfall of the wirehouse as, as some people have prognosticated in the industry. That being said, 
the wirehouses are huge. And when billion dollar teams leave, like those are really big numbers to pretty much anyone's needle. And so as we've seen, the ecosystem around breakaways has built, the support infrastructure has grown. You've got more and more firms from what you know Hightower and Dynasty did in the early days. Now they even have more competitors, all providing ways to grease the wheels and facilitate the transition to independence. You know, to me, what's ultimately happening is as advisors even just like as human beings, as business owners, we all have these decisions to make about how much we want to build with our own two hands and how much we want to rely on someone else's resources and tools and brand and capabilities and the rest. So that to me is why we've always in this industry had a divide between people who are independents and people who are in employee models. And we've had that going back decades and decades, You know, from wirehouses versus independent broker-dealers. Now it's more wirehouses versus independent RIAs. But there's always been an employee model. There's always been an independent model. And I think that's going to continue for the indefinite future because there's always a subset of people that want to go out there with their own two hands and build their log cabin you know, in the wilderness from scratch. And there's always going to be a group that just wants to live in the, the comfortable environs of the mothership that's built all this stuff and figure this stuff out and provides the resources for them. And they just get to go do the thing that they want to do. The shift to me that's happening, though, is, you know, first of all, not all of us sort through that process perfectly. Right. Sometimes we end out in an independent channel and go, you know, I really wish I had more support and infrastructure. And sometimes you end out in an employee environment and go, you know, I really wish I had a, a little bit more independence. And sometimes it takes you, particularly I find to go from the employee side to the independent side, it might take you 5, 10, 15, 20 years of your career to really build the skill set, the experience, the confidence, the comfort level to say, look, I don't even know if I want to build on my own from scratch, but now my business is at a point where I actually do. I want that level of control. It creates additional responsibilities for me that I got to deal with if I go to the independent side. But I want those responsibilities because I want the control and flexibility that independence brings. And that to me is really what we're seeing in the breakaway movement. It's firms, it's advisors either that maybe probably shouldn't have been on that side in the first place, but particularly if you started 10 and 20 years ago or more, there just wasn't much of a support ecosystem for independent advisors. And so the fact that there are so many more technology tools, providers, platforms, middle office players, and the rest have just made it much easier to be an independent than it ever was in the past. And so it's reduced the barriers to cross over and we see more people crossing over. And I think for some advisors, just they had to get to a certain point in their careers and businesses to decide, I didn't really want to build from scratch, but now I'm at a point in my career and my life and my business where I do. And, and often that sort of comes with the economies of scale of, you know, the industry has been shifting towards the fee-based model for the better part of 20 years. So 20 years ago, when you were mostly commission-based, if you woke up every January 1st and your income was zero, you didn't exactly want to go build something from scratch with a lot of overhead because you were bankrupt at the beginning of every year. You had to go sell a whole bunch of clients just to even cover your overhead, never mind make a profit. It wouldn't have been very appealing. But as we've shifted to this fee-based model and recurring revenue starts cropping up and suddenly you wake up on January 1st and you've already got a million of revenue or two or three or five or 10 million because you're a billion plus dollar firm. Now, all of a sudden, it looks very different. Hey, I wake up on January 1st. I got $10 million of revenue and dozens of employees who already run this business and make sure it runs cleanly. And you start saying like, okay, what again does the mothership provide me that I couldn't actually build myself? Because even if I went independent and I don't want to do it, I just hire a person to do it because I can do that now because I've got enough clients and recurring revenue to make that possible. I can make a decision, business decision of a person needs to do this, but it doesn't have to be my problem as the business owner once I'm large enough to be able to afford to hire the people. And so I see the kind of this combination of some people who maybe just land in the wrong channel and reorient themselves, the growth of the fee-based business, which has gotten us to the point where we have recurring revenue and team and staff infrastructure that makes it possible to already run your firm within a wirehouse as kind of a mini independent firm. So going independent is not such a big leap. And the growth of the ecosystem supporting independence from the platforms, the technology tools, the middle office providers and all the rest, that just makes it easier and easier and makes the transition from wirehouse to the independent model less of a leap. You get all the flexibility of independence, but less of the burdens that you had 10 and 20 years ago. And that to me is what I think has continued to pick up the pace a bit on the wirehouse breakaways. But I don't think it's the beginning of the end of the wirehouse or anything close to that. It's simply a shift of 
some business owners who built their businesses to a certain size and scale and have said, you know what, I think for the last 10 and 20 years of my career, I'm going to control my own destiny and build the thing I want to build my way. So off I go. I actually agree with you completely. I don't think it's the end of the wirehouses. I don't think even close. I think you're right that with 50,000 advisors in the wirehouses, the number of the quantity, the number of actual breakaway advisors is a spit in the ocean. But what I think the industry is paying attention to, and you alluded to it, is the quality and the size of the advisors that are making the leap. Yeah, they're big numbers. Like they're not, they're not moving a couple hundred grand of revenue at a time. They're moving millions or even 10 plus million dollars of revenue. Somewhere. No, that's exactly right. And multi-billions. I mean, you know, we've seen two $6 billion teams break away in the last 12 months. And that's something anybody needs to pay attention to. And I think that's even what the wirehouse has started noticing, which is why you started seeing changes in broker protocol for a couple of firms right. 18 months ago, right? I think it, it finally got to the point of some firms saying, this is actually starting to hurt a little. Like, it's not the destruction of our business, but this hurts. <laughs> We're going to do something about this yeah. now. So I agree with that. But I I also think, you know, you're 100% right that the ecosystem surrounding the breakaway movement has become more robust and advisors have built bigger businesses. So their focus over time begins to change. Two other things I think that really have driven the breakaway movement is one, the big firms have become more bureaucratic. So advisors really value freedom and control and flexibility now more than many other things. The second thing is, is that the as the industry landscape has expanded, it's not just one or the other that either I have to be completely entrepreneurial and build my own, or I'm an employee of Morgan Stanley or UBS. But models like Rockefeller is a really good example of an in-between for the advisor that says, I like what independents stand for. I don't want to build something from scratch. I love the idea of getting paid a transition deal. And in my opinion, I think that's going to be the part of the landscape that's probably going to continue to grow the most. Sexy names like a Rockefeller, firms that may have played ancillary to wealth management or asset management, who are now going to want to get into it, that are going to make it so that big teams who may not be quite as entrepreneurial as some of their brethren can still break out of the wirehouses. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think I'd agree with that as as part of what continues to drive the trend in this direction. Yeah. And I guess relative to independence, you know, leaders in the independent space say that the playing field has been leveled, that platform and technology has been commoditized, and an independent advisor can access the same or better offerings as an advisor who works for the biggest firms. Do you think that's true or false? I think that's very much true now. It's it's one of the most significant shifts that's hit the whole technology ecosystem for advisors. And it's basically an artifact or a byproduct of just the the rise of the internet. So if I dial the clock back 20 years ago, you know, the, the software for independent advisors was mostly like the technology equivalent of going out to like the undiscovered West in the US 200 years ago. Like you, you were going out on your own, you were building a log cabin with your own two hands. There was basically no technology for independent advisors. Even if you look at most of the largest independent technology solutions for advisors today, they're almost all what I call the homegrowns which is they were actually software that was built by an advisory firm for themselves because they didn't have any good technology. And then they sold it to other advisor friends. And then suddenly they ended up with the software business on the side. That was the origin of Redtail, of Juncture, of Tamarack, of Orion, of TRX, of iRebal, of Trade Warrior. Like almost all the technology in the independent space are homegrown solutions because there was no technology. So advisors started building their own and selling it to their friends. And then as the independent channel grew, the software companies grew. If you wanted good software 20 years ago, you went to large firms because large firms had 5, 10, 15, 20,000 advisors. So they had enough advisors to amortize the cost of building technology across a huge number of people. So you could make good technology and really justify the investment to it. Now that calculus is entirely flipped around. So independent software companies that work across multiple firms, all of which is delivered through the internet, through the cloud, connects to each other with APIs to integrate, means independent companies like Redtail or Money Guide Pro or eMoney Advisor have 30, 40, 50,000 users. They have as many users as all the wirehouses combined. And so independent companies now 
have even more economies of scale to build cutting edge technology than large firms that have to amortize the cost over far fewer advisors. So the whole calculus of it, the whole development cycle and where you get economies of scale and technology has completely flipped because of the connectivity of the internet that lets you distribute the software anywhere and everywhere at the same time and integrate it all together at the same time, thanks to the the rise of APIs. And so it, it has completely transformed the technology ecosystem and the independent channel over the past 20 years from this is where like the bare bones or non-existent technology is you may have to build your own to survive to a world now where not only is a lot of the biggest and best software that's iterating the most quickly in the independent channels, but increasingly now large firms are leasing independent software, even including some of the wirehouses to actually meet their own technology needs. They've decided that the independent tools are actually better than what they can create internally in a lot of software categories. It's just a, it's a monumental shift, but it also means you really don't have to be captive to a large firm to get good technology the way that was absolutely true 20 years ago. It just isn't today. One of our last guests on the show was Eric Poirier, who's the CEO of Adipore. And that's exactly the case. Many of the wirehouses are leasing their software. So that's real proof of a more, much more leveled playing field. Wirehouses using Adipar, wirehouses using Salesforce that you can get independently as well. Uh, you know, many wirehouses use Money Guide Pro. This technology that was built in the independent channels is now crossing over because even the large firms are realizing the independent stuff is so much better and develops so much more quickly because they can actually amortize their costs over so many more advisor users that that's where the innovation has shifted and that's where a lot of the strong technology has shifted. But from the independent versus wire perspective now, just that edge wasn't what it once was. There's still a little bit of complexity when you go out, got to go on your own because there's actually a lot of solutions in the independent world. So you have to decide how to weave together what you want your firm's technology stack to be. So there is some additional decision-making. It's not quite, depending a little on which custodian you use, it's not quite as fully prepackaged for you as what you get in the wirehouses, but you can assemble together something that's very competitive or often even better now by pulling together best-in-class components that integrate together through APIs. And the bad news is you got to pick them and put it together. The good news is there's consultants that can help you do that. And ultimately, you get to make the combination that's right for you and your firm, which wasn't a choice you had before. Right. And how about with respect to cybersecurity? Do you think that a standalone independent firm could compete with the big firms? I do because you have to bear in mind. So first of all, where are your cybersecurity risks in the first place? Your first cybersecurity risk is your client data. Well, if you're using cloud-based technology, which I sure as heck hope you are, uh, you know your security is Redtail security, is Orion's security, is Salesforce's security. Not only do these companies take their security very seriously, but again, many of them are larger software companies than the wirehouse is. So they're built to handle the security. They've got more cybersecurity tools than anybody else out there because they they have to for what they do for their business. And it's basically, it's their problem. It's not your problem as an independent advisor, or at least not down to, is my client data going to get hacked at Salesforce? The second piece of cybersecurity is our client assets safe. Well, safety of client assets is at custodians. So it might be Schwab or Fidelity holding your assets instead of Merrill or Morgan, but now you're still into custodial platforms with trillions of dollars of assets who put enormous resources towards cybersecurity. And everybody wants to keep the assets safe. It's absolutely essential for them. But you're relying on a multi-trillion dollar firm's cybersecurity either way, whether you're on the independent side or the wirehouse side, because we're all generally custing assets at, at mega firms that have those cybersecurity resources. The only parts of cybersecurity that really worry me at the end of the day are when advisors actually go off the grid of those systems. So, you know, the significant additional risks for both cybersecurity and outright fraud, if you're going to self-custody and not use a third-party custody and clearing firm that has, you know, billion-dollar technology budgets to maintain good cybersecurity. If you're going to keep your data on your own servers rather than Salesforce's servers, you know, Salesforce, I believe, use Amazon Web Services. So Amazon Web Services has the world's leading cybersecurity measures and guards with guns and giant fences to protect all their servers. Your advisory firm is a server in a closet that usually has a drop ceiling, which means I could just go over the hmm. locked door, drop down through the drop ceiling, steal all your servers and walk out. 
take me about five minutes and I could break into your office with a rock through the glass and the pretty glass pane in your front door. So when we try to hold on to our own stuff, I actually think that's the least secure for cybersecurity and the parts I worry the most about when you keep the data on your servers, when you keep custody of the client assets yourself. But again, when you get out to the independent ecosystem of custody and clearing platforms and technology firms, you know, frankly, you're relying on their cybersecurity, not your own, in the same way that you were as an employee at a wirehouse. And a lot of those firms are actually bigger and serving more customers and clients than the wirehouses were. So I'll at least trust their cybersecurity as much as we can figure out how to trust anybody's cybersecurity and that they have the, the proper protocols in place. And then the only piece that's left is the one that matters for every firm, which is just making sure your employees are trained in cybersecurity. Because the biggest risk for most advisory firms is not like the firm's servers getting hacked and stealing client information. It's the fake email you get at 445 on a Friday afternoon that says, I'm traveling in Brazil and I'm injured and I'm in the hospital and my insurance doesn't work here. And I need you to wire $42,000 right away because I've, I've got to get discharged from the hospital over the weekend, but you can't reach me because I'm in Brazil and there's so no cell reception here at this hospital. And the random employee who hasn't already left at 445 on the Friday after everybody else is gone has to make the decision about whether this is a fake request or a real one, because you certainly don't want to leave your client stranded in a hospital in a foreign country by saying no and getting this wrong. And so there are a whole bunch of fraudsters that try to create those high pressure situations to get you to make what proves to be a fraudulent wire transfer. But that's not a hacking thing. That's not sort of directly a cybersecurity thing per se. That's a figuring out how to compromise your employees to get them to make a mistake. And, and that's actually a problem in any environment. Last question, and believe me, I could go on and on. You are fascinating, a font of information. This has been extraordinary, but at the risk of going on too long, one last question. What is your prediction for the advice industry over the next decade? What does the landscape look like 10 years from now? So what changes over the next decade? To me, the fundamental shift that we're in the midst of right now is you know, the roots of us as financial advisors is that we weren't literally in the advice business. We were in the product distribution business. I started out in the insurance world. Then I sold mutual funds for a while before I got over to the RA channel. You know, most of us who've been doing this for any period of time, we grew up in the business selling stuff. And we may have done financial plans and financial advice, but we did it because that was how you figured out what the client needed so you could figure out what to sell them. So like, we weren't doing advice for the sake of advice and we weren't paid for advice. We did advice as a discovery process to engage in a needs-based selling process so that we could figure out what to sell that the client would buy. And to me, the fundamental shift that's happening is we're moving from advice for the sake of supporting product sales to advice for the sake of advice. So the, the rise of AUM models, the rise of fee models in general, now the emergence of fee-for-service models, so monthly subscription fees, retainer fees, and so forth, all built around what happens when you get paid for the advice first and you get rid of the products. Not that clients don't need to have the products implemented, like they still need to have their stuff invested somewhere. They still need to have proper insurance coverages, but we get paid by the client for the advice and then they prescribe the thing that we go and fill separately, right? It's kind of the doctor model. Like the doctor doesn't work for the drug company. I pay the doctor and then the doctor prescribes me the drugs. So I still get the drugs, but the doctor's not the salesperson. The doctor's kind of the gatekeeper that sits on my side of the table to make sure I get the right drugs and I don't get the wrong drugs. That to me is the shift that we're seeing in the whole advice world right now. And I think it's leading to a whole reinvention or reconfiguration of who's out there in the advice world and what they do. It's largely breaking down even industry channels, right? When I look at some of the, the firms that are making the most rapidly scaling efforts to do ongoing financial planning with investment portfolios for the mass affluent, I see Vanguard's personal advisor services, Schwab, Fidelity's wealth management division, and Merrill Edge. And whoever thought you would put Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, and Merrill in the same category? But that's where we're ending out. All the lines to me are getting redrawn as we shift from product distribution models into advice models. So when I kind of look out the industry in 10 years, I still see platforms for employee advisors and an independent world. I don't think that changes. It's not going to be all independence. It's not going to be no independence because some of us are just wired one way or another. Right? It's like, are Google phones going to win or are iPhones going to win? The answer is like, they both win because there's just some people that are Google people and they're just some people that are Apple people and they don't tend to cross over very much. So there's a mindset, I think, that leaves independence and employee advisors out there. But I see a system that is so driven around 
advice and getting paid advice fees that it really begins to reconfigure the platforms. You you really don't need broker dealers as traditionally constituted because broker dealers are kind of literally from a regulatory perspective, they're product distribution intermediaries that you don't need if you're not in the product distribution business anymore, you're in the advice business. But you still need advisor support platforms if you're in the advice business. So we see like wirehouses and broker dealers losing business to Dynasty and Hightower, which are still actually advisor support platforms that do a whole lot of what you used to get at broker dealers. They just don't have the product and the FINRA stuff because they're advice systems and not product systems. So I see the reconfiguration from product to advice. That to me merely becomes the dominant trend of the coming years. And that's going to change channels. That's going to change products we use. That's going to change the technology we use. There's a lot of client experience that you wrap around that. But the shift from products to advice is the dominant trend. And I think everything else then starts to follow thereafter. Yeah. Michael, thank you. This was really wonderful. I hope that you will join me again at some point in the future and continue the conversation. This has been really, really wonderful. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and and, uh, letting me share in some of the conversation. No doubt that Michael shared a vast amount of information Solid advice for any advisor looking to take his business to the next level. In an industry where an expanded landscape and leveled playing field has enabled advisors at all levels to compete for the very same clients, it is incumbent upon them to understand their key differentiators as well as their clients' needs in order to remain relevant, ensure growth, and protect enterprise value. In our next episode, we have part two of our conversation with Eric Poirier, CEO of Adapar, one of the industry's leading tech platforms. We'll take the conversation about technology in the independent space further and explore the role it plays in different stages of a business and what advisors need to consider as their firms and clients evolve. So I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 879 1002 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their readers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.